So the um, title of the talk, you know, uh, I often get these really kind of punchy titles when I'm sitting in my kuti back in Chithurst. Uh, it's kind of nice, interesting titles come up because I used to not have any titles for talks because it was just like the way it is or being where you are or present knowing. People get bored with that. <laughs> it's safe, you know, because you just, whatever you do, it works. <laughs> so, there's something more specific, a little bit of, um, you know, something more action based or engaging. And I've been doing quite a lot of study looking into uh, climate change and environmental issues uh, at that particular time. So, I was really quite. Uh, Keen looking into how, as a practitioner, does one uh, respond to and uh, engage in life on the planet in a way that's uh, as least destructive as possible? So, uh, and how does that uh, work with one's aspiration for release, liberation, nibbana? Uh, these, are these two things completely separate? And uh, what are the difficulties there? Because I think mostly when people kind of, you conceive of Nibbana, it's very much you know, laid back, not doing anything and out of it. And then we can see if actually in the world, it's kind of forward, probably getting a little bit um, activated, sometimes getting rather righteous and... Uh, and there's always these issues around how does one remain active in the world and yet remain uh, within access of this passion and release without getting too embedded in it all. So I, I thought, well, that's an interesting title. Uh, so I thought, interesting theme. So I came up with the title Engaged Disengagement. <laughs> Nibbana of the world and what to do about it. And actually, I should have put a question mark on the end of that, really. Because <laughs> the idea that I'm going to roll out some kind of global policy and <laughs> set everything straight is certainly not the case. It's a question. And I think it's an ongoing question. It's a personal question. And I hope it's a question that uh, can stay with you uh, and be something that you orient around, you know, that you're not abandoning either of those. And what do we do? And what is the world, and what do we do? And how, you know, to keep the question fresh, and not come to there's nothing you can do, or you've got to sort it all out. You know, but just keep it. What is there? What one can one do? What is proper livelihood? What is proper action? What is your engagement? What in fact is the eightfold path? <coughs> and so. You know, what do we mean by the world? And just again to, to uh, uh, look into that. The world is many things, and uh, there are many worlds. You know, where, and really the world is where your attention rests and what you find yourself uh, organized within, affected by, 
responding to. Uh, you know, it's really, really the world is the world that's sustained through your attention, what you give attention to, and what you're affected by, and wh where your intentions and actions, where, where they operate, what you direct them to. So it could be the baseball world, you know. It could be the fashion world. It could be the Buddhist world. It could be, um, you know, there is uh, realms that we could dwell in. And uh, the Buddha said, yeah, there's lots of them, actually. It's not just one world. There's lots of them. The common feature they have is they're sustained through our attention. They give us contact. We're contacted by them. And they cause us to respond, react, engage. They're sustained through that. Attention, intention, and contact. Or attention, contact, and intention is our response to that. Uh, that's our life. And what we also know is that it's... Uh, it's temporary. You know. You're in it, and you're with it, and you're involved with it, and you're affected by it, and you attend to it, and then you leave it. Whether you die or you know, the scenario changes. But it's a temporary thing. And as far as we know, no one has ever actually solved it uh, as a satisfactory abiding place. So once we get that um, clear, or consider this, you know, is it, because its nature is always moving and changing, and effective, uh, and you know, one's own intentions and attention are also changing and affected. So you're in this kind of very dynamic continuum that's ongoing. So it can't, it, by its nature, is not one that comes to a place of resolution or finality. It's neither something you can be completely separate from. Yeah. There's always some world or another that you're involved with. Neither is it something you can actually completely straighten out. You know? If your world is just you and one other person, just a two-person world, yeah, you think that should be doable. Nope. <laughs> if you get down to just one person, like, you sit on retreat on your own, and still it doesn't quite, there's always something not quite right about it, fulfilled about it. You know? So retreats often give you a very uh, startling close-up of, you know, everything should be just about right now. If it's ever going to be right, this is it. And it, it doesn't get right. What gets right, perhaps, and you learn from the, you know, the most fundamental level up, is how you respond to that. And you respond to it from the Nibbana <laughs> uh, vision or inclination. Uh, and that Nibbana inclination is certainly not one of annihilation uh, or repudiation, but your relationship in your world is one that's cleared of greed, of hatred, delusion. And in a way, our worlds will continue to unfold and cascade as uh, places where we keep having to learn that message over and over again. Even this one, which looked like it was going to be clear and sorted out and straight and, you know, 
also this one is a place I had to develop patience with, uh, compassion with, uh, uh, openness with, equanimity with, you know, generosity towards, uh, loving kindness with it. It's not going to be just a, a ride I can go to sleep on <laughs> or have it go my own way. You know? And you learn that lesson time and time again. And it, it, but it will not let you be disengaged from it in the way we normally think, like I don't have to do anything. It will cause you, in fact, to disengage from your sense of self. That's, that's the possibility. Or disengage from the selfishness, yeah, which is much more deeply embedded than just kind of what we normally mean by that. The very sense of seeing one, experiencing oneself as a separate, finite entity in a world of others. Separate, finite entity in a world of others. That's the basic setup that the Nibbana practices work on. So the world and what to do about it is uh, attention to what you're in, and that could be uh, social world, yeah, depending on what your where you give your attention, and then you and how you're affected, and what you respond, what your responses are with that and how that process can keep working away at one sense of uh, owning it, controlling it, despairing of it, uh, blaming it, blaming, you know, all these things wearing away. Yeah. And in the process of that, you find that enormous uh, blessings and purity of intention is manifested in one's world. Now, there's some specific things that I probably would point to in terms of my own interests in that. But again, we kind of come back to you know, the Buddha as our source reflection and recognizing that the Buddha, uh, you know, what defines a Buddha above anything else is he realized Nibbana. That's the kind of benchmark, you know, fundamental characteristic. Other people did it, but he did it by himself, without instruction. So he realized Nibbana, and uh, if you look in the historical narratives, uh, he's quite happy with that. <laughs> 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 and then something happened, and it's expressed in rather, you know, terms we find slightly cosmological, the Brahma Sahampati, whatever that is, some kind of spirit of... Uh, called the overseer of the worlds, or some kind of guardian spirit, or you could even make it something psychological, like some awareness of the whole world system. So whether you see it as cosmology or psychology, those are, those are changeable, but some recognition of, yes, there is this Nibbana, but also there is this, yeah, a world, a world of sentient beings. Nibbana, but it's also you can just, you know, change the lens if you like, and you come into sentiency, and your attention is opened once you come into being sentient, 
what, you know, to this realm, then the world of sentient beings. And then at that point, what occurs for the Buddha is the experience of empathy. It's switching on, switching on the empathic sense. They didn't actually have a program at that time or know specifically what to do, but the switching off the empathic sense, just the recognition of, oh, you know, there is this experience, this sentient experience of beings, and uh, there's the potency, the potential here for, for awakening just as I have realized it. Yeah. Switching on the empathic sense. The empathic sense doesn't do anything other than survey and acknowledge. It's like a aha moment. Yeah. And what it does is it, when all of us can do that, and it means we come, uh, you know, we soften a sense of identities and likes and dislikes and specific persons and we recognize that the empathic sense is just like me, creatures are born, creatures die, just like me, creatures experience pain, just like me, creatures experience desire, uh, they fear, they need, they want, just like me. Um, in some ways, I am no separate from them and uh, there's some sense of both of uh, a shimmer of, you could say, like <coughs> deep uh, compassion or even a sadness, seeing the poignancy of all this, but also essentially the resonance of compassion. So that's that sense, awakening to that. I think this is a really important sense to switch on, and it comes before any action, before any action. Yeah. Now we may, as we give attention to our world, where our world is, probably that attention will very rapidly be turned into some kind of action. The action could be, ah, well, you know, dismiss it, or take up a position with regard to it, or feel moved to do something in it, yeah, to choose some particular piece in it, or to adopt a philosophical position about it, or to turn over and close your <laughs> close one's eyes. There's some, you know, those actions can occur, can't they? Those reactions can occur. But as practitioners, you want to just first of all enter the empathic, get the empathic sense opened, and start to feel. Uh, what arises in that, and the first thing that arises is uh, the sense of that, the, the poignancy of it all. It's so fragile, it feels a lot. And it feels a lot, and it has no reason. It has no logic, no reason, no purpose. We can't really find a reason for the world, or the purpose of it, but we recognize it all feels. So you come into that and you realize that's the same for me. I also am in this. I may find various ideas and reasons about what I'm doing, where I'm going, uh, judgments about how worthwhile I am or worthless I am or my purpose or role in life or whether I'm part of the great mystery or not. Uh, but when you put all that aside, you come back to it feels. 
And with that, the beginning of the, what are called the immeasurables, occurs the quality of kindness yeah, and compassion, gladness at the welfare of creatures, and equanimity, recognizing the nature of sentiency is to arise, pass, to struggle, to be born, to have no particular finality, to just be arising and passing. And there's nothing one can really do about that. That process itself will always be the case. Whether it arises and passes painfully, wonderfully, with all kinds of interesting flourishes and twirls on it, writing sonnets as it goes, <laughs> whatever it does, it's going to do that. <laughs> and in that sense, the slug and Shakespeare are about the same. <laughs> Yeah, and in that sense, there's no, there's no difference between them. One is no more valuable than the other. <laughs> Just at that fundamental level. But then also, uh, as you begin to, you know, stare at that sense and then begin to orient around that and take in and develop wisdom around it, you realize, yeah, there's that, that's true on the feeling level. And yet we can also begin to acknowledge that um, human beings have great, greater potential than slugs. They're not better, they're just bigger. <laughs> they do a lot more damage and they can do a lot more good things. No slug is going to create uh, a charity. For, for six slugs. <laughs> They're not going to campaign, complain, you know, campaign for justice or anything like that. Human beings can do these things and, uh, you know, human beings can safeguard porpoises, you know, even outside their own species. They can do these uh, beautiful things for other creatures and also for each other. As they say, the saying is, is there's, uh, human beings can, can do just about anything good. There's no limit to the good they can do. Unfortunately, there's about no limit to the bad they can do. <laughs> and what we're trying to recognize in all that span is, is uh, you know, how to maximize the potential for the good and minimize the potential for the bad. And the end results, eventually, are still going to be everything arises and passes. It all comes and goes. There's no final conclusion. There's no final paradise. There's no final, um, you know, perfect society. It's all going to rise and pass. And yet, where our individual lives have been made truly uh, potent, worthwhile, it's been a good ride. And as we, as if we have a, if our own life becomes a good ride in the most beautiful sense, then what we can recognize is the potential for others to also develop is increased. Education, you know, uh, service, uh, you know, skillful actions. The more that we develop them, the more that the succeeding generations can benefit from that. And without, we can only say that this is uh, the way in which our own potential is most fully 
activated and brought to light and it's for the welfare of others if we handle it carefully it's for our own welfare and it also does not hinder Nibbana in that if you really cultivate it it's going to take you into and through all the places where we hang on where we get stuck where our good intentions get stuck and where they get stuck generally briefly is a big I am is where they get stuck our potential for empathy gets limited to me or me and my friends or me and my tribe or me and my species or me you know however that is you get this reduction in the empathic field we take a position and if you're outside that field then you don't count and what we notice in generally in human history is that by and large we're getting better If you look at, say, uh, a couple of hundred years ago, you didn't have any kind of corporations protecting poor people, impoverished people. You didn't have any uh, um, things for the welfare of wildlife, animals, creatures. All of the most uh, beautiful uh, Empathic, empathic organizations have arisen in the last couple of hundred years or so, perhaps even a hundred years. It's gradually getting better on one level. You know, you come back to, say, you know, European history, essentially most of European history is just about bullies beating each other up. <laughs> and getting little gangs of their people getting you know, co-opted into helping out beating other people up. Uh, and that's what you did. If you had any power, you went around and beat other people up and grabbed as much as you could. Um, slavery, standard. Right across the globe, slavery, quite normal. Yeah, that's what you did. If you had the power, you operated it in order to co-opt people, to dominate people, to beat people up, and that's the way it was. The only advantage was that the, the, the kind of instruments that people used were rather primitive, you know, swords and bows and arrows. So you could do quite a lot of beating up without doing the kind of harm that one idiot can do now just by pushing a button. <laughs> so, you know, although the, the crisis that we're in really is that although there is an increased sense of empathy, there's also... The, p the potential for greater devastation through lack of it and that doesn't have to be many people having a lack of it you can have one percent people controlling weaponry money corporations and so forth and that can do a huge amount of damage and this is the kind of situation where the question that we're in
growth point, you know, not saying the only point, but the growth point for human beings is this uh, empathic sense and the development of wise facilitation of it. So that essentially the narrowness of the empathy, the narrowness of the, of the concern, just me, is, is broadened to me and my people, even me and people I don't really know, and even me and people I don't even really like very much, but let them not be harmed, you know? And even creatures, other creatures, let them also exist. So you're kind of widening that boundary. Uh, that, that, that's the growth point. And developing the wisdom that backs that up. What does that really mean? What does that really mean when I actually switch that on? So that's our growth point, and we keep returning to the most fundamental growth point we can find, which is our own awareness, our own uh, intelligence, our own intelligence, particularly when it's held in calm, held in reflection, held against the understanding of change, impermanence, not self-suffering, the standard stuff. You hold it in that, and you start to look at the places and come into the places uh, where you're feeling the very confident with that, and then how you can bring that forth, how you can bring that up into action. But the growth point always has to come back into the place of, of consciousness, of awareness. And what you notice, even just uh, sitting, sitting still and quietly as you enter that particular realm, you probably notice that it's not undifferentiated. Nibbana is undifferentiated. It's just even. Uh, the unenlightened being, or the only partially enlightened being, or the people, the person who hasn't finished his or her work, there'll be certain points which are called uh, energy points. And some of them will be glowing points. Glowing points. Attractions. Uh, delights, sweets, candies, things, glowing, glowing points that we want to have more of. You know? And some places will be kind of pain points that we definitely want to shut down, close up. So you start to contemplate these and you realize that the two actually are almost counterpoints of each other that if we want to decrease the pain points, we've also got to decrease the glow, glowing points. <laughs> because the, the, the quality of the differentiation in that field is what's causing that. As long as we really believe in the glowing points as something that we could, we could amplify and find satisfaction in, then we experience the sense of frustration and loss about not having it, enough of it, and that accentuates the the painful places. And we also don't bring, if our minds are continually moving into what seems glowing and attractive, they don't do the work of healing the places that are uh, difficult. And you start to get that lesson. You have to attend to your own pain, your own dissonance, your own grumblingness, your own woundedness, with the kind of care and attention that comes from also from letting go of the places where you feel 
glowing and attracted. So your awareness becomes evened. You take that up a level, that's exactly the message that you want to take into your life. And you notice there are quite a few glow points. And the big one that's waved in front of us, of course, is the glow of the sense realm. And when we open into this world, you see there's quite a lot of glowing stuff around, particularly around the uh, consumer holidays, vacations, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. <laughs> uh, there'll probably be something else a Tuesday. Probably, every day of the week can be a day to go out and buy a bit more. And there'll be something there, eye candy of some kind, you know, gadgets, glowing, shiny, new, bright, instant. And they all have this quality of turning you on. Until you bought, until you bought. And yet they're exceptionally good at that. And just the amount, you know, you kind of widen your, your vision, the amount of human energy that goes into both creating those glow points and then chasing them. The amount of human energy that goes into, into that. Yeah. Uh, we we'll call it the distraction industry. And that can be, you know, things you can buy, things you can look at and absorb into, entertainments and so forth. Yeah. The amount of energy that goes into that. And surely one's world has to be one where you're beginning to notice that. And just because it's doing that, and you recognize in your meditation what that sign means, this sign doesn't mean go for it, this sign, actually what it should mean is back off. <laughs> <laughs> just find your center, find your feet, develop your wisdom, be clear about that. Recognize this too is impermanent, this too is unsatisfactory. This too is not something I can have. You know, the fundamental uh, quality of ignorance is it says there's something you can have and there isn't anything you can have. There's something you can uh, be absolved from pain that you don't have to have, and, and you're always going to have pain, there's something you can be. You can have a finite position, you can be something. And none of those assumptions, as you, as you work on them, make any, uh, come up with truth. It doesn't happen. So your first thing is when you recognize anything that's giving you that signal, this is somewhere where you could bury yourself into comfort, you realize this is delusion. This is somewhere where you could establish yourself solid, rock solid. It's a delusion. <laughs> and what it will bring up instead is greed, aversion, delusion, fixation, dogma, opinion. And you'll leave the empathic field altogether. Your empathic sense will shrink. Your access to empathy will shrink. Yeah. In Britain, we don't have a thanksgiving day. Yeah. But um, this year, the Walmart, they have a branch, a, a company they bought up in Britain called Asda Supermarket. And they didn't have the Thanksgiving, but they thought we'll have a Black Friday anyway. <laughs> I didn't know what Black Friday was. I think it was just some kind of day of mourning. <laughs> 
in a, over a massacre of some kind. But it, oh, it's Black Friday. I don't know why they call it Black Friday. It means go out and buy lots of things. So people had no, no festivity, no vacation to celebrate. There was nothing to celebrate. There wasn't, you know, great, we were, we were looked after by the native people. There was nothing to celebrate <laughs> at all. And yet the Black Friday still occurred. They brought it into Britain and people went mad. Just at this store, because it was selling everything at like a you know 20%, 30% discount, so people were getting trampled, you know, in order to get to that glowing thing. Not only did you get a 60-inch plasma screen, but you got it at knockdown price. You know, you only had to pay 50 pounds for it or whatever it was, and nobody recognised. If you didn't buy it, you wouldn't have to pay any pounds for it. <laughs> <laughs> Know, and you get a hundred percent reduction. <laughs> you know, do we ever add that one up? You know, buy now and save. Why not not buy and save even more? <laughs> That's the power of the glow, isn't it? You didn't realise you needed it until when I had compassion one of these great uh, supermarket chains or Amazon kindly informed you of your need and how you'd be missing out on it. I get these things from my email like every two or three days. Amazon, the god of compassion, reminds me <laughs> of my needs and how I can now really take advantage of it. And they always look so, and if you give them a, a moment of attention, they go, wow, yeah, hey, look at that. There's 20% off, a Blu-ray, whatever it is. I don't know what it is, but it's 20% off it. So that's the one you, you know, you back off just because of what it does. And I'm in great position, I don't have any money. So that was, <laughs> it really helps, it really helps. Yeah, you can't, because you've got an immediate check on. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do if I did. But, uh, and taste is another level of delusion, isn't it? You know, what money is. So powerful. So the two, probably the two most important uh, agents of delusion which actually corresponds to each other. One is money, which doesn't really exist, and yet has tremendous power. And the other is selfhood, which also doesn't really exist, <coughs> but has tremendous power. <laughs> and these two cooperate. <laughs> they cooperate. You know, you know, it's eventually, you know, you, what's happening now with money is just numbers moving around. Numbers moving around. And yet, there's a real consequence somewhere in there that uh, people are not getting their, their fundamental needs met because of the, the, the conversion of all resources into this process. Yeah. That is, we uh, cut trees down for money. We um, draw things out of the earth for money. We kill animals for money. Yeah. We, you know, if you want to go somewhere, you want to go to a concert, 
you pay money to go in. Yeah. We, that's, we put copyright on my thoughts for money. So my thoughts are turned into money. My, yeah, everything's turned into money because that, that becomes the, the way in which we operate through money. If you can't operate through money, you, you know, you're out of the system, you're broke, then you, you're not, you don't get it, you know. So you've got to come to that level of converting everything, the resources of the planet and the human, even human resources into money. You, you want somebody to look after your kid, you pay them, you know. Because they've got to make money. Yeah. It's not like, oh yeah, sure. You know, like uh, when I was a boy, then the neighbors looked after your kid. And you looked after their kids. And nobody paid anybody, you just did it. But now it's gone to everybody needs money, so okay. Because you need it, you're going to charge it, and so on. So this, the thing continues, doesn't it? Everything converted into money. And when you look at it, it's kind of, when you widen your lens, you say, you know, I don't think the Earth said, hey, before I give you any air, I want my cut. <laughs> any water, that belongs to me. You know. The vegetables in the ground didn't say, well, you know, you've got to pay us. It was all given, wasn't it? All free. And we took it, we said this is mine, and now I'm going to turn it into money. That, that whole process. So one of the big uh, uh, movements against this is generosity and uh, free will. You can even use money, but you turn it the other way. Or you can use resources, and just for free, just because I like giving. It's fun, it's nice. And uh, as we enter and operate through that empathic domain, and you meet and touch other people, what you begin to find is they want to give something back. <laughs> you know, because it's nice, it's fun, it gets us together, it bonds us, makes us feel good. Some of the um, tribal societies work in terms of building up huge debts. And the bigger the debt, the more happy you are. Because what this means is, I'm indebted to so many people now, I've got thousands of friends. <laughs> you, know, you, net, you network through specifically generating uh, obligation and debt. But in the empathic field, rather than the abstract field of finance. If you get debt in a non-empathic field, it's a problem because they say, we're going to snatch your house if you don't come up with the payments. That's why it's so important to whatever world you, you live in, really to find a world where you can experience an empathic sense. If it's just five of you, or budding communities, and this is really perhaps you know, the major structural piece that comes out of, out of practicing in all these methods, all these systems, as you come into from your meditation, from your awakening the empathic sense, through what we're going to do on any level at all, you realize we've got to be community. 
If it's a community of three, that's what it is. Maybe it could be five, maybe it could be 20. It's not a club, it's just a sense of where's the agreement of sharing, and where's the agreement of responsibility, and, where's, and along with that comes where's the, where's the field of tolerance. Because once you begin to share with other people, then there's the empathic sense, which is all wonderful, and there's the personal sense, which is all, I'm different from you. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and the clashing, yeah? I didn't, you know, I want to do it my way. I don't like that. I'm not there with that. I don't agree with that. I've lived in communities uh, 39 years. They are constant sources of enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> of seeing the beauty of, of beings and the way we can snarl up and recognize that still holding the faith in that if we keep staying in the empathic sense, we begin to work through the, where we snarl up and get stuck. Empathic sense is therefore crucial and very important because the other thing that can happen other than our glowing around sense objects and getting and gaining is our fascination with systems and structures and to put it, crystallize it into being right. And being right is an enormously attractive possibility. <laughs> How much more of a glow can you get than when you're right? <laughs> And that sweet feeling of success when one's right. And once you're right, then you're pretty certain who's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you come to that sense, and you come out of the empathic sense, and we're into the, I'm right, and these guys are wrong. And cut, the empathic sense cuts. Yeah? And it's an exceptionally glowing and bright um, object, the right sense. Because as with you know, getting today's free offer, it makes complete, perfect sense. Look, just like how wonderful it is to get a 20% reduction and get one of these new, wonderful, special things that you needed at 20% reduction, that is completely logical to go to that. Once, you're in, once the glow gets you, forget the empathic field. I'm going to trample it over this guy to get that one. <laughs> you know what the sales are like? <laughs> Same thing with being right. Perhaps even more so. Right, it's all logical. The facts add up. I proved it. Yeah? It should be this way. I proved it. The statistics are there. Da, 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 da. Right. What we don't notice is the number of people we're creating as wrong and um, the loss of empathy. With hindsight, you recognize how 
what terrible things this has done. The Crusades were right. Um, they were right. Killing, wiping out all those Muslims for the sake of God. They were right. The Inquisition was right. Saving people's soul by burning them at the stake. We don't, you know, we don't, we don't like to do it, but it's right. <laughs> they will thank us up in heaven. They were right. I guess the Nazis were right. Difficult, you know, the closer you get to it, the more inconceivable it is. To, look, we need to establish a pure race because the human species are becoming degenerate with all these corrupt genes and so forth. There's even a science called eugenics, which came before the Nazis, which had no particular agenda, that just it was feeling, it was looking at human beings and recognizing, you know, it's just like you look at horses and you want to get the best ones, you want to not continue the weak species, so that was the theory. Right, isn't it? Done a lot of degenerate, feeble people strong, so we just weed out. They didn't have any particular agenda, they weren't going to go around annihilating people, but that particular line of thought, you know, <laughs> picking that up, yeah. and so it goes, you know. The uh, communists were right. We were right, Vietnam was right, to protect the world from communist peril, was right and so on and so on and so on. With that theme, human beings can do just about anything. Because the people who are wrong, once they're out of empathy, they're no longer subjective. You feel like I feel. You have kids like I have kids. You get frightened. You get angry, I get angry. Yeah. Same thing. It becomes, you know, you lose your subjective sense, you become an object on my screen. Rub it out. Well, would it be better without that? This is something that is not uh, um, specific to any one individual, it's within all of us. It's a, it's a seed within all of us. We don't necessarily follow it up, hopefully. <laughs> we don't act upon it, but we may very well have that view, and we'd rather enjoy the glow of feeling superior. Yeah. And then we look at the people who are not right, you know, all those kind of, I don't know, you know, what are they? What are they now, you know? non-democratic, uh, misogynists, uh, you know, sexist, um, uh, you know, conservative, whatever, you know, whatever your label is, we're around it. <laughs> we're not going to kill them, but still, we can't feel a sense of empathy with them. I think this is, you know, before it becomes violent, it's just extremely sad. And the fragmentation of human experience that occurs with that. And perhaps we even do it to ourselves. We see bits of ourselves that are not right. And we have a very harsh, we all know this phenomenon, meditators, the judgment, isn't it? The judge. 
The judge in us knows what's right. Because we know what's right, we create a shadow of what's wrong. And there's no healing, there's no spreading, there's no widening, there's no including, there's no blessing, there's no, okay, you got it wrong. But there's a way forward, there's a way through that. And it must, first of all, become one where I, I include. And this is, uh, of course, whenever we see this it, it, it being enacted, it is enormous, isn't it? It's just because uh, Nelson Mandela passed away recently, you know, and the world celebrated this person who got beyond being right, you know, and every reason to feel right and unjustly treated. And yet what happened there from that, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, uh, you know, moving around South Africa saying, okay, all the people have shot people, you come and confess, just come up, talk about it, we'll clear it. Enormous uh, act in human history to say, you know, empathy. And uh, the tears and uh, grief expressed at that through all that process and yet in that some kind of healing happening through that, through people not hanging on to right and wrong. It's an important lesson to learn. This is how community develops, much more than just even a, a select group, but a real sense of the communality of the human being. And maybe in our practice, as we begin to touch into that, we even specifically start to nudge into areas where we're not so comfortable with the people we kind of feel a little bit edgy about. I can at least listen. I can at least be with this person. I can at least try to see them internally as someone just like me. Just, just, just beginning to pra practice with that. And then you can begin to, you know, once you've come out of those, those magnetic places, you start to use your, your wisdom faculty to say, well, how did this get here? You know, why do you think that person's like that? You, know, and you start to look at the cause and effect of how a person got to be that way, and you think, gee, wow. That may, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And that process of, in, of just inquiry, and you don't take the present moment manifestation as a thing separate on its own. So the empathic field is not just in terms of space, even psychological space, but also in terms of time. You know, what has arisen? Where did it come from? Don't just believe in the present moment as if it's just you know, complete in itself. It's all come from causes and conditions. Yeah. My own particular environmental um, interest, you know, means I start to look at something like this and I think, tree. You know, I'm not get, jumping up and down about it. Okay, I don't know how the tree was made, but it's at least acknowledged this was tree. 
maybe that tree was specifically grown in you know sustainable ways but I just remember this is tree plastic I remember this was oil I think where's it going to go to when I finish with it away we call it away <laughs> where's away <laughs> is there anywhere away it just means off my screen if you, you widen there's no such thing as a way, is there? It's going to land somewhere in my extended domain. It came from there, and it's going to go back to there. And uh, how much do I want to, what responsibility do I have over that process? You know? So we start to you know, really look into some of these things. And that itself is an interesting practice. And really trying to, but again, trying to avoid the righteousness about it. So as we're looking at how does this process lead to my welfare, so I feel clearer, I feel I'm not sleeping on the job. I'm aware of the material world. I'm taking responsibility for the material world. I'm aware of the human realm. I'm taking responsibility. I'm aware of my own karmic tendencies. I'm taking responsibility that I'm not sleeping on that. If you don't sleep, that's called awakening. And the more that you can widen and open, and the less sleeping you do, <laughs> the less you get drugged and hypnotized by the glow points, the more nibbanic you're going to get. That's, that's the trajectory, isn't it? Yeah. And the Buddha, you know, talked in many ways about this process. Just to you know, finish this evening, give specific points. First thing the Buddha would teach beginners is um, dana. So you can't really develop anything without dana. And this is not a man, he wasn't fundraising. <laughs> He's saying, if your power, hand doesn't do that, it's going to do that. If it does that too much, it's going to do that. Right. If it stays like that too long, it's eventually going to do that. If it only knows that movement. So you've got to train it to do that. It doesn't really matter whether that is a word that you offer, a thought you offer, an action you offer, a glass of water you offer. You want to find, you want to maximize the occasions when in any respect at all you can do that. Yeah. Just because this is for your welfare. <laughs> for your welfare, for the welfare of others, and leads to Nibbana. Because Nibbana is the absence of holding on, isn't it? The absence of holding on to self. So the more we can do that, physically, materially, psychologically, the more that we can be generous. Generous to others. Generous in our sharing. Generous in our attention. Generous in our affections. Generous in our compassion. The more we can do that. So you haven't started until you've got this one. Start small. You all know what it feels like when others give to you and how beautiful it feels when you give to others. Don't just do it on Black Friday. Do it. <laughs> Don't do it with those things. <laughs> and the next one, again, these are not 
startling concepts, are they? But like so many of these things, the concepts are actually really very simple and familiar. And I think that's part of the genius of the Buddha. He tells us things we kind of know already, but we never really thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly developed in all, in all extents. Next one is sila, virtue, morality. To others as to myself. It's really, you know, again, a deep into the empathic field, isn't it? So even the thought inclination even the mental inclination that is dismissive, cruel, acquisitive, deceptive. I don't want it. You know, when I, I don't like that. I know the kind of things I can do with that, even if it's on a psychological level. The furtiveness, the holding, you know, the, the blaming, the criticizing. I don't want that. It doesn't do me any good. It doesn't do you any good. <laughs> doesn't lead to Nibbana. So you, you know. And in a way, with both of these, we need people to do it to. You can't just do it as a theory, can you? Well, you can, but what does that count? Here I am, giving a thousand blessings to beings innumerable as the sand, grains of the sand, Ganges River. You know. But somebody left their shoes in the shoe rack in the wrong place. <laughs> so, Really, we need other beings, manifest beings, in order to cultivate these things. Manifest imperfect beings <laughs> in order to manifest these things towards. So really, those things are only perfected in the physical, actual, conditioned, unsatisfactory realm. You've got to enter this stuff to get through it. You've got to enter it very fully <coughs> and very lovingly, even though you don't like it. <laughs> to get through it that's, that's the thing that's what makes Buddhas so awesome <laughs> he didn't flip off into Nirvana he stayed around to the end of his life doing it all the time you know Sila yeah. to people I like people I don't like people who felt me harm da 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 still I refuse to let that quality of heart be lost. And sila is just like loving kindness turned into behavior, isn't it? Yeah. Third one, renunciation. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Use the, 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 the razor of just shaving, shaving, shaving yeah. away what's really necessary. Yeah. Essentially, how these build the community, the commons, like. I don't just mean a community like a particular bunch of people living together, but the commons is that, you know, we recognize, well, once we've got generosity, we want to share. Once we've got morality, we trust the people. We act immorally towards each other. We, we can share things because we know that nobody's going to rip me off. You know? So that means I don't need to have so much because I can share yours and you can share mine. You know, monasteries for all their shortcomings and so on. Buddhist monasteries, Christian monasteries, so forth. Communities, the great thing about them is one washing machine, 30 people. <laughs> you know, 25 people, one car. 
just that simple piece like that, you know. So just, you know, how can you look towards generating something of that nature? You want to really do something practical, yeah, that really works. How do you develop the sense of the commons, whether it's however bonded it is? That must be our ongoing uh, question of practice our ongoing question of living practice, our ongoing question of how to live this life practicing Dharma for my welfare, for your welfare, for the welfare of the world, and for our liberation. So I'll conclude there for this evening. Thank you for listening. I want to take a few minutes break and then if anyone has any um, questions or comments you want to bring up. Yeah, Michael.